Welcome to Ian Bremmer, our first illustrious guest, and to my co-host, the also illustrious Nuriel Rabini, and to our audience for our first episode of Rabini and Clark, a podcast from the world's leading thinkers exploring the nexus between economics and finance, science and technology, and policy and geopolitics. <laughs> Welcome, Ian. Great having you with us. And we're so glad that you're helping us kick off this new podcast. So if it's okay with everyone, let's dive right in into our conversation. That's Great. Good. So um, let's start with politics. How much of a populist backlash will we see against liberal democracy, given the gridlock and partisanship of democracies and the inability to implement decisive structural reforms? Um, I mean, we've, we've gotten into this situation with growing levels of anti-establishment sentiment across the world's democracies over decades. I mean, we talk about globalization, but it's never really been global because so much of the world's population has been sort of shut out about it or has been forgotten about. And so um, I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, I personally am very supportive of the trillions of dollars that are being spent and will be spent uh, on improving the social contract and the infrastructure context around it for the average American in the United States, as well as um, the redistribution and relief that we're seeing from rich countries to poor countries in Europe. I think those things matter. And in Japan and Canada, you know, you don't need to do as much because the inequality is not as great. Um, but I don't think that those things by themselves are like flipping a switch and suddenly will get you, okay, now we believe that these systems aren't rigged against us especially because um, the, uh, the changes that are coming from technology are displacing people so much more quickly than the policy fixes. So if you ask me, I would say, I think that maybe we have through the coronavirus response, maybe we've slowed the trend towards greater populism to a degree, but I don't think we've yet turned it around. And the, the role of the tech companies um, in the lives of the average human being, which, I mean, th this is a level of accumulation and consolidation of power that is not in any way being challenged. Uh, in fact, in many ways, it's only gotten stronger because these are the strongest players coming out of coronavirus, very much empowered by the nature of the crisis that coronavirus was and is all of that makes me feel like the growth of populism will continue. So speaking of powerful players, will a Chinese model of technocratic authoritarianism become over time more popular and widespread? I hope not. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I know that China is going to be the largest economy in the world. And I know that their technological capabilities in many key areas are already at parity, and in some cases, even better, more developed, more advanced than the United States. And you couldn't say that in any way 10 years ago. And 10 years is a blip geopolitically. So if you look at that trend, you would say, well, maybe, 
maybe you worry about that. But China is still a poor country. Per capita income in China is, you know, a fraction of that of the United States. The average Chinese doesn't want to live in China if they're given a choice. They still want to live in the U.S. So, I mean, the question you asked me just now, Jim, is whether China becomes more attractive as a model. I'm not sure how attractive China is as a model, even to the average Chinese. It's not clear to me that people like the fact that they do not have liberties in China. It's not clear to me the fact that people don't like the fact they have no privacy at all in China. They clearly like the fact that the economic trajectory has been as strong as it has for the average Chinese. That the middle class is growing, but I, and I'm, I'm also not sure how much the Chinese model. Is seen as desirably exportable by others around the world. Their economy dominates a lot of lower and middle-income economies around the world. That's important, no question. And if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, you are more aligned with Beijing and what Beijing wants than you are with the United States. But that doesn't mean that you believe that the Chinese model is more attractive. That just means that. You don't have so any any really good alternatives. So I, I'm framing my answer because of the way you asked the question. Um, but I'm not a. I mean, to the extent that there is an ideological model out there, uh, I think the bigger problem the United States has is not the challenge from China. The bigger problem the United States has is the fact that we don't, as Americans, believe in our own institutions the way that we did. When the wall came down, that that we're we're not a very good example of representative democracy right now, and that's so, something that I do believe the Biden administration is attempting to address. Uh, but I, I think it's the job of much more than a single administration. But, but uh, Ian, if I could just maybe push back a little bit, uh, we've not only had say Trump in the U.S. and a Brexit decision. In the UK, but there are a bunch of populist parties of the right and the left are becoming popular in parts of Europe. But some version of authoritarian populism seems to be also rising in a bunch of emerging markets. I mean, you have uh, uh, Putin in Russia, you have Erdogan in Turkey, you have Orbán in Hungary, you have uh, Duterte, you have Bolsonaro, you have Maduro. And of course, China is a model of uh, technocratic authoritarianism. So, are we going in the direction of uh, less democracy and more authoritarian, and uh, various variants of pseudo populism all over the world, or, or, or this is an exception, or how do you see it? No, by definition, we are moving into a world where the there there is not a singular model of governance. Um, the United States is not it. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, there's much more competition in that space. Uh, number one, the world's most powerful country is not as democratic as it was 20 or 30 years ago. That's the most meaningful shift. Uh, if you look at the last election that we held where a majority of people that voted for Trump still today believe that it was stolen by Biden. That is verifiably false, but they still believe it. Um, and we saw the events, the tragic events of January 6th that could have been much worse, much worse. 
that does not happen in a well-functioning representative democracy. So, and I, I think I worry about 2024. I don't think that Biden's won and now that's it. Now we, we dodge the bullet and everything's fine. I mean, these are big structural issues and the United States is the most powerful democracy in the world. So that's a problem. And, you know, the fact that in China, not only is Xi Jinping so much stronger as a leader than recent predecessors post Mao, but simply the fact that China is a much more powerful, much more robust country on the global stage. I mean, those two factors imply that there's going to be more competitiveness in terms of models for governance than we've had at any point since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. I accept that fully, Nuriel. But I, what, I, what I don't accept is the idea that the Chinese model is becoming a preferred model for people all over the world. I, I, I don't even think that the Chinese model is necessarily a preferred model for all Chinese. I just know that there are many costs for articulating uh, any, any disagreement with that if you are one of 1.4 billion people living in China. So it's a very difficult thing to get at what people want. What we are seeing happening is that what people want increasingly doesn't matter as much in terms of political outcomes. I mean, we know in the United States that part of the reason we got Trump is because the United States electoral system disenfranchises so many Americans. I mean, it wasn't like a majority of people voted for Trump. He lost by millions of votes in the popular vote. Doesn't matter. It's not the way the American system works. And the disenfranchisement systemically of more and more Americans in different pieces of legislation around the country helps to continue to push that forward. So what we're seeing in the United States is that the will of the people is increasingly subverted. So is the fact that American democracy is eroding, is that because that's what the average American wants? No, it's happening in spite of the fact that the average American doesn't want it. And how about China? I mean, Xi Jinping's consolidation of power, is that happening because that's what the average Chinese person wants? I don't think that's true. I think it's happening in spite of the fact. So I had a very interesting back and forth just today with um, a member of the Chinese state media um, on, on representing the people. And, and he was giving a colleague of mine a hard time who was saying, you think that I speak for you know 1.4 billion Chinese? And I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, as a member of the Chinese state media, there is no danger that you speak for 1.4 billion Chinese. You do not. And, and the Russian government does not speak for hundreds of millions of Russians. And increasingly, the US political leaders do not speak for the majority of the American people. That is a truly unfortunate trend. But again, it does not imply that the Chinese model is the model that is preferred by the average person on the planet. Before okay. we move on to uh, economics, I just want to add in one more topic on this. Um, in, in addition to the structural issues you're talking about, um, the fact of technology, this ever-evolving technology is a wild card and a continued wild card, I think, 
in terms of how it disrupts and makes more complex uh, the issues within the liberal democracies, as we've seen. And also it enables a kind of authoritarianism at levels of efficiency that have never been possible before. So I think those are that's another factor that's, that's underneath these currents that you just mentioned that could have an impact down the road. Sure. And I mean, not only that, but also the fact that at the same time that we Americans are deeply concerned that the power that is being wielded to convert citizens into mechanisms for consuming data and, and exploiting that um, within a very small number of, of private sector organizations, it's very hard to effectively combat that when at the same time those same organizations are upholding national security vis-a-vis -vis competitors in China that reflect a much more existential threat to the American political system. Um, so I, I think it's, it's very, I'm much more pessimistic about the impact of big technology companies on society in the near to medium term than I am about models of governance, broadly speaking. Agreed. Okay. Uh, Ian, let's switch to, say, economic issues. And again, a big picture. You know, we had a period of time of maybe 20, 30 years where there was something of a Washington consensus. You know, China joined the global economy. The Soviet Union collapsed. We had a greater globalization, more trade in goods and services, capital, labor, technology, data, information, market-oriented reforms falling inflation, falling long rates. People were talking about uh, great moderation, but then uh, tons of people were left behind. Globalization had winners and losers and great moderation went away. We started having financial crisis, not just in emerging markets, but also you know, in advanced economies. And now we have a huge buildup of private and public debts that may become eventually unsustainable. And people now are starting to think that we're gonna have to use uh, uh, inflation to wipe out the real value of debts. And we have these great experiments of monetary and fiscal easing that uh, may end up with inflation or even stagflation, a return to the malaise of the, of the 70s. So you see more economic stability and growth or economic instability. And of course, uh, it may depend on regions and countries. But uh, how you see the economic outlook? Look, I, I, I'm a political scientist, as you know very well. Um, and so I'm, I'm defer to you guys as to things like where you see inflation going. And I'm, I'm not trained uh, to, to opine on that uh, in, in anything other than an armchair way. But I will say that I worry that, um, you know, over the last 50 years, the, the implicit contract that was made with China was that we are asking them to be a fully fledged participant in global supply chains. And they largely accepted that. I mean, they didn't necessarily play by all the rules, but they did proactively see that participating in global supply chains, China being the factory for the world's manufacture, both in terms of goods and increasingly services, 
uh, that that level of integration created both great efficiency and also great growth for China and for the rest of the world. And our corporations benefited from that. It is now very clear that that integration of global supply chains is starting to unwind. And some of that is a natural economic phenomenon of the fact that we don't need as much labor um, in consumption, I mean, into in manufacturing and services so we can displace it. Some of that is because Chinese labor has become much more expensive and, and part of the whole middle income trap. Um, part of it is because the US government has told the Chinese, actually, when it comes to Huawei and other critical technology firms that you've developed, uh, you are not a welcome part of the global supply chain anymore. We will take you out of it. And, um, and not only that, uh, but we will punish our allies or attempt to if they participate and cooperate with you as well. Now, the Chinese government has taken some pretty significant lessons from that. Uh, if you look at their five-year plan and their dual circulation policy that focuses on supporting Chinese domestic consumption and controlling their own supply chain, the orientation is towards ensuring that they can build their own non-globalized access for all of their critical technologies. Now, it's not at all clear to me that it's in the interests of the United States to push the Chinese government as hard as possible to get them to invest in their own semiconductors, to get them to invest in their own completely separate 5G. It's not clear to me that that's in our interest. I don't think we've given that a lot of thought, but certainly to the extent that globalization, for me, the problems of globalization are not about free trade. The problems of globalization are about the, um, the falling asleep at the switch of political actors in ensuring that the benefits from globalization, the massive profits and efficiencies were distributed more equitably in ways that would make citizens of the country across the board feel invested and bought in, feel like their leaders were stewards of the process that actually were public servants as opposed to captured by special moneyed interests. I fear that the decisions that are being made right now um, are, are going to be deeply problematic um, and constrain growth um, to a much greater degree at a time when we're also going to be fighting against other systemic constraints, most principally climate change. Um, and at a time when, the, when populism is rising the way it is, um, this, this is a dangerous thing to do. So I'm interested in your views in to what extent you think that rising inflation will further complicate that um, and that the size of these deficits near term, medium term poses an actual threat. I don't have a strong view on that. Um, but, but I do think the points that I just raised from the political perspective are going to further complicate the economic outcome. Well, there is a view that uh, there may be a regime change because we're now monetizing uh, large fiscal deficits and we're going to continue to do so. And, uh, 
And if we're going to be in a world in which a bunch of negative supply shocks will occur, deglobalization, balkanization of global supply chain, fragmentation of the global economy, decoupling, uh, maybe less tech innovation as there is a backlash against big tech and decoupling between US and China, those could be a combination of things that reduce uh, potential growth, increase the cost of production, and then monetizing fiscal deficit eventually could lead us to inflation or even to the stagflation of the 1970s. And there is a concern about the stimulus being excessive and leading to inflation. So I think for the first time ever, people start to worry about maybe going back to a world of, uh, of malaise, where you're going to have uh, high inflation and uh, low economic growth. It's certainly a risk to be considering that I'm economists are starting to think about. I don't know whether you have any views on that or not. Uh, well, it's, it's been a world of low inflation. Are we going back to inflation? Breaking, it's clear to me that breaking the global data market into two or more pieces will inhibit innovation, right? That's yeah. very clear. Yeah. And it's also very clear that having a small number of effective monopolies over the walled gardens of data that they control also stops creative destruction and innovation from occurring inside our societies. Yeah. I think that both of those are very important macro trends that will create less growth, less opportunity, than we otherwise would like to see. I mean, we see this happening in all sorts of different areas. You look at, you know, the media space, and on the one hand, you've got the New York Times hoovering up all of this cash, doing incredibly well. On the other hand, you have Substack, right, which is allowing a very small number of very well-known brands to make an enormous amount of cash. And in between that, you got nothing. You got nothing. And I see that playing out in the broader economy, given these two trends in technology that we presently see. And that is, that is not animal spirits. That's not entrepreneurship. It's not capitalism. I mean, you know, I, I see capitalism. I created Eurasia Group from scratch 23 years ago, um, much the same way that you created Rubini, you know, a decade plus ago. And, you know, within 10 years, there were all sorts of nascent competitors that came up in the field and they made the field better. And I had no ability to stop them from developing, you know, sort of in that context. And the only way that I was going to retain a dominant position was hiring the best talent, innovating relentlessly, building my brand, investing in the company, doing the kind of things that I was trained historically that was what made capitalism a great system. And when I look at what is happening with, with big data and new technology, it is the antithesis of that. That's not happening. I mean, when Facebook can identify any potential player and, and can either shut them down or buy them cheap to incorporate them into their ecosystem, look what they're doing with Clubhouse right now. And they basically say, okay, we'll just create that in Facebook. That is not, that is not a capitalist model. Mm-hmm. Not at all. That is, that is, you know, uh, that is a model that, that cries out for antitrust in some capacity. Yeah. But, that, but then a related economic topic, you know, there has been a sharp increase in uh, income and wealth inequality, not just the U.S., but even in China, in many emerging markets. And of course, it's a combination of many factors. 
It could be, you know, globalization that has winners and losers, could be migration, could be technological innovation that is capital intensive, skill bias, labor saving, not just blue collar jobs, but increasingly white collar jobs, could be the economic and political power of uh, economic and financial elites is the concentration of uh, economic power in these monopolies or oligopolies with less competition. It's, uh, it's a whole bunch of factors are leading it. But uh, it seems like it's leading a, to a backlash against, on one side, liberal democracy, and on the other side, against globalization, against technology, against even market-oriented reforms. So, so is it going to continue? And what's going to be the political response you, to this inequality number one around the world. Said, you said that that inequality is growing in China, too. So to the extent that there's a backlash, there's going to be backlashes in all sorts of different societies. This is yeah. you know, the, the fact that the average person in a middle class or working class environment increasingly has very little to offer the capitalists is a systemic problem, irrespective of the system. And one of my favorite books on this topic, much broader is uh, The Great Levelers, uh, written by that Princeton professor, I think it was Schnadel, um, who basically said, like, it doesn't matter what kind of a political system you have, open or closed, that over time, people with access to power find ways to strengthen their access to power and pass it on to their progeny. And that creates greater levels of inequality which historically really only is changed, is disrupted by three things, famine, revolution, or, or war. Um, and, you know, we just had a pandemic, but it wasn't really big enough to change the underlying factors that you're talking about. So, look, I am, I am intrinsically supportive of spending trillions of dollars in the United States on things that will benefit the working and middle class. And I don't even care where the money comes from. I mean, you wanna fund it with the deficit, fine. You wanna increase my taxes somewhat, fine. Like I, I truly don't care. Um, but but I, you know, I, I clearly worry that it's not gonna be remotely sufficient. I mean, I'm not trying to tell you that I'm with AOC and it should be 10 trillion as opposed to two trillion, but on balance, my view structurally has been that we are not investing enough in the average American. We're just not. And if you don't have a college degree in the United States, in this environment, you're basically fucked. And, and that's a serious problem. Um, and I think that's getting much worse, not better. And I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the answer is universal basic income because I, I'm skeptical of that as a response, to be honest with you. But I do know that the only way you fix it is to make the average American feel invested in outcomes. And, and there's a reason that we voted for Trump in this country, someone that is, but was by far the most incapable and, 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 and who, whose character was so fundamentally flawed of any political leader that I personally had experienced in my lifetime and yet he won a legitimate vote. And okay, he lost by millions, but still a lot of people voted for him. And he would have won again if it wasn't for him mishandling coronavirus. So how could that happen in a country with the kind of power and wealth that the United States has? And the answer is because the Americans are absolutely not taking care of their people. 
So I, I mean, I am, I feel really good um, about the idea that we're about to put trillions of dollars on the table to try to start to address that. And by the way, I also feel really good that we're starting to recognize that a lot of that does also need to redress structural racism in this country. The last time we did a really big domestic investment was the New Deal. And the New Deal, which was awesome in terms of unleashing American power, was structurally racist. I mean, you look at the GI Bill and you look at the infrastructure development and you look at the money that was, apply that was applied. Blacks were cut out of it in the country. I mean, you, they, they weren't able to get the cheap mortgages. They weren't able to get uh, the, the, the college uh, loans, uh, no interest. They, they didn't have any of that. And so suddenly over decades, you have white people able to get college degrees, able to buy houses, able to create wealth, and blacks are structurally kept out of it. So this isn't even about slavery or James Crow. This is about Jim Crow. This is literally about the last major stimulus the U.S. did. And so now that we're finally doing it again in 2021, and we have an administration that is trying to address that, I think that that makes me more optimistic. I, I, I'm hopeful about that. Great. So um, we're going to very quickly, I just want to ask a quick question about technology and then uh, move on with Nuriel asking about geopolitics. But you mentioned a, a few of these things, both of you, but in a world where we have AI, machine learning, robotics, and all this automation, and it's going to come even quicker soon, it's really starting to get into the, the, the roots of the system. Um, are we going, do you see, at least from that, a kind of uh, techno-utopian future uh, with all that extra efficiency, or do you see uh, this this increasing systemic rise in income inequality um, with with tech unemployment, you know, affecting the middle class and working class, uh, you know, and, and the middle class increasingly to their to probably to their shock. Um, you know, Andrew Yang, when he ran for president, emphasized that the uh, places that Trump got more votes than expected in 2016 mirrored where technological unemployment had occurred. And, um, you know, obviously then his policy response was UBI, um, which you've commented that, that you're not a, a, a big fan of, but how do you, how do you see this ma major tech shift that seems to be built in right now to our, uh, our techno economy and our globalizing economy? Well, I, I am not, anti-technology in any way, shape, or form. I mean, if it wasn't for the advances in technology, um, you know, our ability to combat climate change would be nothing right now. I mean, you know, we know that solar power is cheaper than coal. 10 years ago, that wasn't remotely the case. And that, that puts us in a much better position, right? I mean, if we want to hit any of these goals to try to bring us to two degrees of warming as opposed to three or four, it's all on the basis of great investments into technology. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the efficiencies that come out of that. But we know that every time we've had a major technological revolution in human society before, we know two things. We know, number one, that it has created enormous wealth and efficiency for the planet. And we also know, number two, that one to two generations of workers were completely destroyed by it. 
So, uh, you know, the fact that you can be in favor of progress, but that you can also look at whole communities of people that are not participating and you have to help these people, you have to do something and saying that you're just going to retrain them. I mean, you know, I, I appreciate John Kerry saying, well, we'll take that coal money and uh, instead we're going to have them working as solar engineers. That's just not going to be effective for a lot of Americans. So you have to give those people direct support. And what form that takes, what kind of outlays, I mean, you know, that's something that we can debate. But redistribution at scale for these people must take place, must take place. We have the ability to do it. We can spend that money. Um, so I, I think that's, that is the answer. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't worry um, that, that, um, that that's going to lead to... Um, that's going to lead to dystopia. Um, but I do think that the techno utopians who think that technology and technological uses are necessarily positive for the planet. I, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I'm not, if I look at the thing that's changed most of our lives, the most dramatically, it's probably the iPhone as individuals. On balance, I would say the iPhone has probably been more dystopian than utopian in terms of stripping away privacy, in terms of treating us as commodities, in terms of addicting people um, to the constant feedback and also creating filter bubbles that align them more with people that are only like them and making them less curious and more tribal as people. I would say that that technology as an advance has been on balance more destructive of humanity than constructive. So the fact that technologies can be used for good and for bad, and the fact that on balance progress in the planet driven by technology has been positive, does not mean that any individual new technology is necessarily neutral. And, and right now, if you ask me, I would say that technologies insofar as they affect society and interaction are probably moving us in a more dystopian direction, while technologies insofar as they affect our structural engagement with the planet are probably moving us in a more utopian direction. And I don't know how to balance those two things. So what's the policy solution to say technological unemployment and the rising inequality? Is it UBI? Is it taxing the robots? Is it taxing the wealthy and giving free services to the poor and those who are left behind? Uh, is it enough? Um, you know, I look, at, I look at society and I look at breakdown of families. So I would start with things that would allow families to continue to function as families. It would be a lot more support for maternity and paternity leave than we give something that feels more like the Nordics and less like the United States, which is just so poor. I would do a lot more around addiction treatment. I do a lot more around therapy uh, and, and mental illness. Right. I mean, the, the, for me, that doesn't sound very exciting, but I really want to help individual families. Like I want to give the up because I know when I grew up in the projects, I knew the reason that I had an opportunity is because my mom was, even though she had panic disorder, she had the family structure around us, extended family. She was able to make me and my brother feel like we could accomplish anything. And neighboring kids who had the same economic conditions as I did, but didn't have the family structure and support ended up failing. 
And I and they failed in very different ways. They're all anecdotal. They're all stories, but they're all people that could have been helped through interventions. And those interventions are less about just throwing a check and more about creating a community around them that cares, that engages with them. And we don't do that in the United States. So, I mean, you know, I, I think that this is less of, I mean, UBI is an exciting thing because it's polarizing. You're writing big checks. I mean, everybody likes big checks, right? But I, I actually think that the solutions are, are going to be more Canadian and more Nordic than they are, you know, let's just throw, like, I, I don't think it's a question of, this is not something that is going to be resolved by a single piece of policy. This is something that's going to require a much more grassroots orientation. Mm -hmm. um, maybe let's move to geopolitics, as you are one of the leading experts of, of that subject. Uh, I remember over a decade ago, you and I wrote a short article, and then you developed it into a book about the fact that we are not anymore in a G7 world or G20 or even G2 or G1, but G0 world, where there was no maybe dominant hegemonic power that could provide a variety of uh, global public goods. You know, you had the British Empire and the Pax Britannica in the 19th century. You had the Pax Americana in the 20th century. Yes, there is the rise of China, but uh, there is now a bunch of different powers, US, China, India, Europe, you name it. So I'm going to remain in this uh, G0 world. And uh, can we maintain uh, global stability if we have global uh, disorder as opposed to a new global order? You know, I, I've always felt that the G0 was an interregnum. Yeah. It was not an order of itself, but it's what happens in between an old order that is stable with, you know, institutions and rules and norms that are set up to be aligned with that period of time and something new because the geopolitics shift, 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 but the institutions stay. And at some point, the fracture is so great that, you know, the, the global order falls apart. So this happens economically. You have, you know, boom cycles and bust cycles, economic recessions and depressions. This is the G0 is basically a geopolitical recession. And the question is, how long does it last? And when I look at the response to the pandemic, which was the by far the biggest crisis of our lifetimes, you know, what happened? G0. I mean, there was no coordination. Now, it didn't help that Trump was president because, I mean, under any normal president, the U.S. wouldn't have left the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. Like, that's an obscenity. But still, you know, there was no coordination internationally on um, treatment, on personal protective equipment, on vaccines. Um, there was no global response coordinated uh, on, on fiscal stimulus. I mean, certainly all the central bank governors are largely on the same page. So they did the same stuff. They had the same playbook, but it wasn't coordinated. And so, I mean, if that's the case in response to this massive crisis, then coming out of the crisis, when people start to feel normal again, it's pretty clear we're still in a G0 environment. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to persist for 10, for 20, for 40 years, because we've got big global challenges that are coming down the pike that make the pandemic look really tiny. Um, and certainly climate is one of those things. Now, the climate summit that we see presently 
Xi Jinping invited to the climate summit. He shows up. That's better than not showing up. But he didn't offer anything because he wasn't about to make a big announcement in Biden's event. Because from Xi Jinping's perspective, the United States is Johnny come lately on climate and has been reliably unreliable in the way they orient towards renewables. And the Chinese, of course, emit a lot more carbon than the Americans, but they're also leading the world in a lot of renewable technologies that they've been investing in for for decades now. And the Americans have done a lot less. So I even on climate for now, I still see a G zero orientation. Yeah. So among the many geopolitical issues of our time, and there are plenty of them, I think there may be a consensus that the biggest one, of course, is uh, the rise of China and this looming strategic rivalry between US and China. People are starting to talk about a new Cold War getting colder, even the risk of eventually a hot war on the issue of the Taiwan is South China Sea. Uh, how likely is that? And the related issue is, of course, uh, if there's going to be a Cold War, how much US and China are going to decouple on trade, on technology, on investment, on monetary system, data, information? How much? How much not? Uh, are we headed towards a completely uncontrolled uh, strategic competition between US and China? Or are we going to have, as maybe Kevin Rudd suggests, a managed strategic competition that implies competition? We compete on some things, we cooperate on other ones. And uh, and will uh, a bunch of other revisionist powers like Russia, Iran, North Korea become effectively de facto, if not de jure, allies of China? So a big conflict between the uh, US and the West and a bunch of revisionist powers. So how you see this uh, big picture issue um, developing over time? It's very clear to me that the US and China right now are not in a Cold War. Um, and, and, you know, our, our friend Neil Ferguson disagrees with me on this. He's wrong. Um, that is an ideological statement. It's not a pragmatic one. The United States and China are massively interdependent in many areas of our economies, and that is not going to change in the near term. So we can say that we are moving towards greater decoupling, and we are heading in a direction that could eventually become a Cold War, but we are not in a Cold War. Um, and uh, in five years' time, you're still going to buy all sorts of Chinese goods from Walmart. Chinese students will still be studying in very large numbers, paying full freight American universities. The NBA will still see China as its most important growth market. So I don't, I don't see that. And we're not going to go to war with Taiwan in the next five years. But we might after that, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are growing dangers. And I think the question, it's very clear to me, that the United States and China are principal competitors of each other. The question is whether the competition will be principally healthy or unhealthy. And right now, uh, the United States is basically saying to China, well, it's up to you because we've got some red lines and you're breaking them and we're not going to compromise on any of them. So unless you change that it's going to be an increasingly unhealthy competition. The Chinese are saying, uh, you guys are complete hypocrites. You are in terminal decline, even if not everyone recognizes it yet. We deserve to be treated as equals. Unless you treat us as equals, this is going to be unhealthy competition. So we are right now on a path of competition, which is increasingly unhealthy, even though we rely upon each other greatly. 
And, and the fact that those two things are coexisting uneasily is going to cause a lot of heartache. It's going to cause a lot of inefficiency in our economies. It's going to make American companies that are trying to uh, sponsor the Olympics in Beijing without trouble in an impossible position where American politicians come after them and saying, you're not patriotic and we should boycott you. And the Chinese government saying, if you move away from Beijing, there's going to be hell to pay in China. But that, that, that is not of any use to Americans' corporations. And we need to be smarter about this. In my view, we should be competing hard against the Chinese in areas where it's in our national security interest. And we should be working with them in areas where it's in our national security interest. You know, look, China reflects a set of values as a government that I personally find antithetical to my own. If I look at the treatment of the Uyghurs, if I look at what they've recently done with Hong Kong, if I look at the nine dash line in the South China Sea, um, I, I, I cannot in any way condone the behavior that they engage in domestically or internationally. And this is not to say the U.S. is in any way perfect on these things, but you cannot compare the two at the same time. Um, but, but the fact that I feel that way about China does not in any way make me feel like I shouldn't work with the Chinese because working with the Chinese is intrinsically in the interests of the American population. It's intrinsically in the interest of our successful governance long-term. Sometimes you need to work with people that you don't agree with. I mean, I, we don't, as American policymakers, we don't have the luxury of sitting in an ivory tower and opining about what kind of things we might ideally like to do. The, the, our, our actions have consequences. And, and pretending that you can just tell the Chinese what to do and they'll just take it and it won't matter to the Americans is, is a luxury that we as the United States can no longer afford to live by. Uh, what do you see the end game for Taiwan? Uh, <clears throat> Deng Xiaoping was saying, let's hide our strength and bide our time. Now China has emerged, uh, Xi Jinping has a different view. And some people believe he wants to get a third term or a fourth because sure. he wants to pass to history books, not just because he cracked down on uh, corruption, but because he reunified China. And the Chinese are becoming restless on this thing. Are we on a collision course? Eventually, I'm not saying next yeah, two eventually, years. Eventually we are. Um, but, you know, what collision means, the Chinese know that if they were going to move on Taiwan suddenly, the potential for war is real, but more, more directly, the economic implications for them, not just with the US, but with other advanced industrial economies around the world, including Japan, would be very significant. Uh, Prime Minister Suga, as you know, was the first foreign leader to be invited to meet with Biden in the United States. And part of their joint statement was the first joint statement about Taiwan from the US and Japan since 1969, since when I was born. That is meaningful. And there is no question in my mind that if the Chinese were to move on Taiwan, there would be major Japanese sanctions that would hurt them economically and American and Australian and the UK and Canada. This really matters. So I do not think that they are going to suddenly 
uh, move militarily to integrate Taiwan into the mainland. But I also think that the asymmetrical buildup militarily of China in their backyard, I think that the level of economic influence that they have over Taiwanese business leaders who have exposure to the mainland is going to afford the Chinese the ability to use levers of power to undermine Taiwan's independence further and further, as they have by getting other countries around the world to break off diplomatic ties over the past decades. And, you know, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, so, so Nouriel, if you had asked me 20 years ago, if the Russians were to invade Ukraine, what will the United States do? I mean, that would that be a conversation that would say, well, that could lead to war. That would be, you know, that'd be massive sanctions against Russian oligarchs and all the rest. That's not what they did. It's not what they did. Russians on the ground in Crimea, an autonomous republic of Ukraine, invited the Russians to come in and annex, and then they held a referendum. And meanwhile, little green men, some of whom were Russian soldiers on vacation, came in and intervened in southeast Ukraine, very favorable population locally to the Russians compared to other parts of Ukraine, and declared an autonomous republic. And that, was, that wasn't a red line. That was, that was I mean, it, 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 it absolutely breached Ukrainian sovereignty. And with the Visegrad Accords, we in the West agreed that we would defend Ukrainian sovereignty as the Russians did so much for that. But it wasn't like there was a sudden direct contravention of a red line by Russian tanks spilling into Kiev that required the Americans to make that kind of a response. So it feels to me that when people ask about Taiwan, they ask about it in an idealized, stylized way that would never reflect the kind of competition we would have. We're still thinking back on the Cuban Missile Crisis days. That's just not the way that, that international diplomacy by other means is effectuated um, in the 21st century. And so I, I think that's the more relevant question. Very thoughtful. Thank you, thank you. Um, so it's hard to imagine an issue that uh, has more geopolitical implications than two superpowers on an inexorable uh, uh, clash trajectory, but global climate change uh, definitely is one. Um, that has, uh, you know, existential implications. Um, so the new global rhetoric is to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 or 2060. Um, but most scientists believe that given current technologies, mitigation, controlling the rise in temperature to two degrees, is mission impossible. Do you agree? And if mitigation is impossible, Adaptation is highly costly too. So what's your view on that picture that's unfolding? Uh, I mean, right now we're on a track to three to four degrees of warming by the end of the century. End of the century is pretty far away. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the uh, level of urgency continues to be far away from what it needs to be. We as human beings have a discount variable on the future. We want a dollar today. We don't value a dollar in 10 years quite the same way. 
And, um, you know, I, the same is true for the planet. That's unfortunate. It's changing. Young people feel much more strongly about climate than old people. The science is becoming more obvious and accepted by people around the world. Uh, even in the U.S., we had a climate skeptic, if not direct denier, in the case of Trump. It also affects people in very different ways. I mean, Bangladesh is going to lose their homes for you know tens of millions of people uh, well before the average American feels that kind of direct climate impact. And so as a consequence, um, you know, you've got a lot more urgency for action on climate for small island nations than you do for lower and medium income economies today. So, you know, you're right. Uh, two degrees is mission impossible. And, you know, even the 2.5, three degree trajectories, a lot of that is reliant on technologies that are not yet proven at scale. Um, they probably will become proven at scale. Many of them, carbon capture technology, for example, other things. But this is, these are big, big things that we're betting on. Um, and there are a lot of winners and losers. Uh, you know, I mean, the last 20 years, the United States has made very, very big bets on natural gas as a bridging technology to get to post-carbon. But there is a really big question about for how long that will be seen as an effective bridging technology. We may have wasted a lot of money. You know, we may have a lot of stranded infrastructure if the world moves a lot faster on this stuff than we had expected 10 years ago. So, you know, I, I think it's complicated. Uh, by the way, I just finished reading this book, which is fantastic, by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry of the Future. And, and it's a book that, you know, is near term future talking about how functionally a G zero world responds as we're getting to two, three degrees of centigrade. So you can't really call it science fiction. It's much more science than fiction. Um, and, and it gets interesting because um, the, the, the beginning of the book is about a, a very high wet bulb temperature event in India that basically wipes out a million people. And so suddenly the Indian government just gets into geoengineering by themselves because it's not that expensive and because no one is paying enough attention to what's happening in India and Bangladesh and Sub-Saharan Africa. You're gonna get all these climate refugees. You're gonna have countries that are under existential threat. You probably know that Kiribati um, is uh, probably the first country that's going to completely lose um, their territory. And they've bought some, some land in Fiji, and they're all going to move there. Uh, but they won't have rights as equal Fijian citizens. And what the hell is that going to mean? And, and, you know, there was a big case that recently came up, I think, in the international court about whether or not you could have a climate refugee and what sort of rights would accrue to that person internationally. This is right now the realm of the theoretic and the legal in very short order it's going to become a geopolitical reality and so that that's what's going to move this is people people are going to change their orientation towards their governments and towards the neighboring countries that they flee to and the united states is not first on the list there it's quite far down the, this conversation will be driven to a much greater degree by the Indians than it will by the United States. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I was, you just brought up many points about climate refugees. I just, given the normal uh, inability of humans to think in, in uh, uh, slow moving threats spread over many years uh, versus something like, which we have seen already, the geopolitical implications of climate issues that affected Syria and affected geopolitics. You know, we're going to probably have uh, climate refugee issues, large scale ones, uh, be, I, I would agree, being the likely driver of the sort of wake up call in ways that, that uh, you know, seemingly anomalous, you know, major weather events won't have. As but, the, but the wake up call will not be for the Americans because we will not get those refugees. Right. I mean, like Syria. I mean, we, we had a resident well, on Syria. Who cares? No, but then I, five, five million refugees from Syria. And it was a wake up call for countries like Turkey and the Europeans, while the Americans. And so, I mean, I, I think that the drivers of climate policy, radical climate policy, will likely be the countries that are truly affected most frontline by these changes as they occur. But, but even for the United States, there have been a series of studies and reports that say that the amount of desertification in Central America right. is pushing millions of people into cities. And from the cities with civil strife and failed society economies, they're moving north. Yep. So we're having a, already a crisis at the border because there are a few thousand people coming. There have been some projections that dozens of millions of Central America, let alone Latin America might try to move north in the next Whoa. decade. And this is so going to be massive, become the equivalent of what happened be, in Syria. This is going to be a massive problem for Mexico. And, and Venezuela, Venezuela is a massive problem for Colombia. Again, it's always the poorer countries that get hit so much worse than yeah, the but ones that if they need to. I, I would tend to agree with what uh, Nuriel is implying, which is that uh, this is not a uh, second degree order you know, problem for the U.S. This is a first degree order problem, and it's going to. And we know that the issue of of immigration is going to be and will remain front and center for the U.S. as a as a political issue. Um, and when you think about the lessons from Syria, which had impacts on the U.S., it was even the the, the Europeans and the Turks, you know, responded, but the U.S absorbed the lesson to some degree in foreign policy circles. How so? Um, if, you, if you add that, the, the, the issues that Nuriel's bringing up, I, I think the U.S. would probably find itself in part of the same conversation. I, you know, I, I just, this is the, probably the single thing we most disagree on in the whole conversation, because when I, when I see what Trump did, when he basically said, I'm Mexico, I'm going to tariff you so hard your head's going to spin unless you actually put real money into your policing your southern border, right? And that was with you know a number that was hardly real crisis levels in the United States. And the Mexican government did exactly that. Now Biden is very unwilling to take that kind of step and measure right now. But as the numbers you start talking about become manifest, the Americans will use hard power to a greater degree. I strongly disagree that the United States has taken major lessons from what has happened in Syria. The country imploded. Half of the people were displaced. Five million became refugees. 500,000 died. And the Americans did virtually nothing. So I'm not, look, this is coming soon to a theater near you. Don't get me wrong. But I want to be very clear 
that the impact and policy implications it will have on the frontline countries will be exponentially greater than they are on the United States. And they will come faster. And therefore, that is where the movement is going to start. It's going to come to the U.S. too. But I'm just talking about the comparative levels of priority. That's my point. I, I agree okay. with you. Yeah. Okay. Just fi final big picture question. Okay. Uh, look at your crystal ball for the next 10, 20 years. There's been a just released uh, publication by the U.S. intelligence agencies on global trend uh, 2040. And uh, looking at the future, they look at a whole bunch of scenarios that look like very dark and unstable for the world uh, 20 years from now. One is called uh, a world adrift of chaos and instability, separate silos of uh, deglobalization, tragedy and mobilization, where there is a food crisis and millions of people die, and then we start to care about climate refugees, but only after a great tragedy. And the more positive scenarios are just of eventually a renaissance of democracies that given a dysfunctional political system, US and the West doesn't look likely or a competitive coexistence between US and China. These are only five scenarios. Uh, do you agree on any of them or you see how you see your scenario of how the world is gonna evolve for the next 20 years? Uh, I, I think that the biggest thing that we've talked about today as, as someone who's a political scientist is about how you deal with China suddenly becoming the largest economy in the world. That transition, uh, I mean, I would make a very strong bet that China will become the most, uh, the most important economy in the world as a technology superpower in the next 10 to 20 years. I'd make a very strong bet on that. And I would make a reasonably strong bet that China will neither implode nor have their political system dramatically change in that period of time. If those two things are true, then overall level of governance will not move towards more democracy. Th th that trend of China is just too great to allow that to occur. So it's gonna be messier. It's gonna be messier, it's gonna be more conflictual. That doesn't necessarily mean war. It doesn't mean that everyone is suffering, but it does mean there's gonna be pockets of greater suffering. The 50 years that we've had coming up to today have more been a story of great emergence of a global middle class. It's been largely a positive story. It's been more democratization. The next 20 years are gonna be much more complicated than that. They're gonna be much more mixed than that, much more fragmented than that. But no major conflict between great powers. I mean, I wouldn't predict it, but I think the tail risk around it is growing. Okay. It is growing. Just, just as a as a final about your scenarios, um, we mentioned COVID earlier, and we mentioned this lack of global coordination um, that was, uh, you know, perhaps surprising given yeah. the nature of, of this this issue. Um, do you did you draw any lessons from the lack of global response to COVID that will affect the scenarios in the coming decades? I wasn't surprised. Again, I mean, I, that's the G zero backdrop. Uh, I'm, I, I am uh, gratified that the United States, for all of our political dysfunction, has managed to have by far the best vaccine rollout response of any country, any major economy in the world. I mean, we're not Israel, but Israel is like the size of New York City. Of any major economy, the U.S. is by far the best, and that puts us in a unique position 
as other countries are really suffering um, to continue to, to pull themselves out of this. I hope that that's something we can take advantage of. Shall we wrap it up now? Yeah, yeah I got to run. I got to yeah, tell yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah, you know, when this comes so out, we'll cross promote and all the rest. It'll be kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank Thanks so much. It was great. Be good, guys. See ya. Bye.